Okay, so this is a history one with accenting the early days. Um, MBM started with an act of repentance on my part, and it went something like this. If I, an Australian Maltese, uh, could come to Christ through an Aussie evangelical church, then so can the rest of my relatives. Which is pretty much the opposite to 1 Corinthians 9 about all things to all men, so that by all possible means we may save some. Um, uh, MBM really started with a concern for uh, a whole a kind of a, a demographic, you know, what popularly we would call WOGs, Mediterranean Middle Eastern people, who I noticed simply weren't in evangelical churches in any kind of significant number. Uh, and there weren't any churches that were particularly marked. I mean, there were Chinese churches, there were some Arabic churches, usually first generation. So, and I noticed myself, I found it easy to bring uh, my Aussie friends to church, but it was like a paradigm shift thinking about my cousins coming. Um, because really there's almost kind of like a double conversion that if you're the dominant ethnic group, you don't quite see, and that is when you become a Christian in a culture that's foreign to your own, there's a double conversion. You come to Christ and then you have to convert to another culture really. Um, and you may think, well, come on, Ray, you're Aussie. But really, I live in the overlap of two cultures, not just two eras, theologically, but two cultures. And, uh, and in a sense, until kind of MBM was created, I never felt quite at home uh, at a church than I had that experience. So mainland uh, evangelical churches seem to be, from my perspective, my little tiny world, dominated by why Anglo-Saxon Protestants, who I love dearly, um, but it, what it did was, it really meant, and we saw this even in the early days of MBM, that it was very easy to distance the gospel, that it was somehow for that group of people. In fact, I remember a guy, a Maltese guy coming. In the early days, we had uh, uh, far more Aussies. And uh, he came and didn't really, and, and kind of heard the gospel, then went back and retreated back to his world. But a year later, he came back. By that stage, we had a number of Assyrians and people who looked like him. And all of a sudden, he felt the claim of the gospel because... He felt there were people like him uh, who had responded to Jesus. Therefore, he couldn't just say, this is for Aussies. Well, in my third year at Moore College, uh, there was a conference that was run by, uh, for, with Philip Jensen and Eddie Gibbs speaking on um, uh, church growth. And it was there that I learned what technically is the homogeneous principle, like attract likes, that who you have in the congregation will pretty much determine who you're likely to attract all things being equal or unequal. Uh, and then I had my own friendship with Archie Poulos, who uh, started the Greek Bible ministry and modeled for me that, uh, uh, under the kind of guidance of Philip Jensen, that um, the way to reach groups, uh, specific ethnic groups, is actually to develop uh, ministries. Uh, I, I framed it this way. For as long as there is an identifiable ethnic group, it appeared that you needed an identifiable ethnic ministry to access that group for the gospel. So that's all percolating in my mind, and uh, I was doing Bible study with my family and uh, my wife, Sandy, who uh, she had promised me that she was going to be a missionary with me to Malta, had changed her mind in third year Moore College. Uh, not permanently, but temporary. She said I couldn't do it at that point. So I sulked for a weekend uh, and, then, uh, and then thought, well, there are lots of wogs in the western suburbs. Maybe we can go there. And, uh, and off we went, really. That was uh, the beginning of the decision to go and start what was then called the Maltese Bible Ministry. That's the original name of MBM. And, uh, and you may think, wow, are there that many Maltese? There are 400,000 Maltese in Australia, more than there are in Malta itself. Um, now, understand, okay, so 1st of March 1991, I start off. I'm attached to Blacktown Anglican. 
where a little Bible study, sorry, I had some photos, but um, I disconnected before I sent the photos to Bruce, so you would have had some nice visuals. And uh, we started on, on March, uh, the first Sunday in March 1991. Um, uh, I had to squeeze that ministry in while having to be part of a, a church that had other, I had rather responsibilities in. And um, now you've got to understand, I, really, I wish more people would say this, I really didn't have a clue what I was doing. Like, I knew a couple of things that were core values for me. Preach the gospel, preach Jesus from the scriptures, love people on God's terms. And that's pretty much my philosophy of ministry, <laughs> uh, which probably explains why it took so long to grow. Uh, but I am very stubborn and I am very dogged. And after 10 years of banging my head, I eventually stopped doing it and think there might be a better way. Well, after the first year of essentially what was a little Bible study in my home, we saw six Maltese converted. Two stayed, two fell away, and two went to other churches. One ended up becoming a priest, but that's another story. Um, I handed him over to a Presbyterian mate of mine, and I don't know what guy. Um, That was a joke. Uh, It's a true story, but it's a joke. I knew uh, uh, we knew then we needed to move to a you know public setting because it was just alienating to be in a home, and we that was one of our mistakes. We went to a school thinking because that was the general language at the time. You needed neutral territory forgetting that my target group of Maltese and similar-like people needed, um, needed a space that was actually comfortable, you know, um, contextually appropriate. So I went for neutral territory. I needed to look for a church building uh, to plant the ministry, as I eventually did when we did a church plant in Fairfield. But I, as I was hearing Ed Stetzer yesterday, which I thought was very helpful, um, I, I realized here are some of my weaknesses as I did what I did. Um, uh, one was, uh, I think, training up leaders. Um, but to be fair, I did uh, raise up a women's worker in the first year who ended up, an Assyrian woman, who ended up being really 50% of the reason why we grew, I think, under God. But, um, but structure and... Pro- I am the most a- a- unnaturally organised... Sorry, naturally unorganised, depending on how you look at it. Structure and processes are about as alien to me. I'm Mr. Social Worker. Come and sit down, tell me your problems kind of a guy. You know, I was a counsellor for three years. So the idea of process is is so counter to my way of thinking that uh, it was so explained the fact that even when we had growth, I think I got in the way of it by not putting in those systems and structures and made me the centre of the wheel, even though I constantly wanted to get out of the centre. But I think uh, there was fairly consistent preaching, which I highly valued. Uh, people needed to know that they could rely that if they brought their friends to church, they weren't going to be embarrassed, they weren't going to be let down. Um, I think pastoring was uh, one of my gifts and evangelism. Uh, we went to the Flemington markets at 4 o'clock in the morning, every Thursday morning, to evangelize Maltese who sold their produce. It was very heroic, but not very useful. <laughs> Um, but it modelled, if nothing else, it modelled for the rest of the team that the pastor's doing it. Um, uh, I, th- I thought we had a good, strong uh, discipleship model and, um, and, a, and there was a real commitment to work with men. Like, I was dogged. And those days, if you, just, if you, you know how you have sort of pictures of yourself in ministry? I felt like I was a private eye. I was tracking down leads all the time. So, you know, a door would open. And, and in that door, especially with WOG families, they're so networked that... If persecution hits, you hit brick walls and you can't go very far. But if you doors open, opportunities for the gospel tend to run through family lines, as you see through the book of Acts. It's one of the advantages of working in, kind of fam- in, in ministries and people groups that have kind of good extended family networks. Um, 
uh, we, my model of discipleship was, you know, just for starters, that beautiful set of Bible studies from St. Matthias, that was it. Um, and we didn't, do, we, we didn't do anything else with them because they were coming from Catholic uh, and Orthodox backgrounds. As one guy said, Ray, we had all the pieces, we just couldn't put it together. You know, we had heaven, hell, Jesus died on the cross. We just couldn't put it together. And what, and what those studies did, especially the first two, Romans 5, 8 and uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is that they put it, you know, they essentially taught you substitutionary atonement and justification by faith alone. I can't tell you how many people got converted on that second study. Um, and uh, so there we were. So the ministry started to grow, but very slowly. Um, I think by the third year, we might have had 40. Man, it was killing me. Um, uh, themes of persecution were quite strong. A lot of people copped flack. The first Maltese girl to get converted, uh, she went home and her father thumped her in the face when she declared she'd become a Christian and uh, talked about what that meant. Um, so me, the fact that I had a story where my mother cried every day for two years was really part, really helpful in that process. It was clear from the beginning we were a regional church. We've been regional a whole, whole history for the last 23 years. How am I going for time, Bruce? Are you watching me? I need you, yeah, please. And because uh, this only works, he's four people speak, three people speaking only works if we stick to time. Um, so persecution was a key theme and my story really helped bridge the gap. They, they found comfort in the fact that their pastor knew what it was like to walk in their footsteps. We church planted within three years in Fairfield uh, because we had a, lot, a whole lot of people from Fairfield coming from Middle Eastern background. By the way, you know, it was the Maltese Bible ministry, but within a year we had more Assyrians than we had Maltese. So there was that kind of tension. Eventually, within four years, I changed the name to multicultural. But felt like I was betraying the cause. It was funny, isn't it? You lock onto an idea. Rule number one, don't believe your own rhetoric. <laughs> um, anyway, we church planted. We saw heaps of gospel growth. It was probably the highlight of my ministry life, those years at Fairfield, we would have Bible studies running with meals, and then, uh, sorry, a meal, and then we'd go off to Bible studies, and then there would be Just for Starters uh, running at the same time, and every new person we shoved into that group. Pretty much every week we were seeing someone converted. We saw about, we grew to 80 very quickly, and most of it was gospel growth. They were probably my best days in ministry, I reckon. Um, but lack of structure and process meant that what originally started so well uh, under the movement of the Spirit got hijacked by Ray Galea's limitations. Anyway, so I reach for Maltese. I get second generation Middle, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean. Okay, so my, my vision widens. It's still homogeneous but broader. And while I'm trying to reach this demographic, God decides to go and evangelize a whole bunch of hippie, hardcore, heavy metal heads, you know, drug users, the complete other end of the spectrum, thinking, what's going on there? And I, I said to one Assyrian guy, go and disciple them. They're in my way, you know, because I'm trying to reach this group. Anyway, that group ends up being this lovely work of the, the Spirit. One stage, we had 13 of them up the front of the stage where one person led the next person to the Lord. I wish I'd filmed it because they've all now moved to the Blue Mountains and, and other places, or some of them have anyway. Um, uh, one of those guys actually is with us, uh, Jim Mobbs. He's uh, uh, Presbyt- uh, going to do a church plan with the Presbyterians. Uh, I remember he came to church stoned for the first six months, and, uh, uh, but eventually came to know the Lord and... Okay, so the homogeneous principle is something I was committed to. This got in the way, so I said, no, 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 what we do is we start a, a church for them. But what I realized, the danger of the homogeneous principle was all of a sudden now, that group, that group of dysfunctional rebels, tattooists, you know, the heavy. Now, you've got to understand, it's not so strange now, but early, sort of mid-90s, that was very rare to find people like that at, at a church in Sydney. 
And uh, so we started a ministry for them to attract their friends, to make it easier for them, their friends. So on paper, it sounded good. But again, I don't, sure, I don't know the reason why, and I'm sure it's leadership, i.e. me. But it didn't take long before the culture started to serve itself and the mission got lost. And, uh, and eventually, we needed to almost, that service ended up becoming much more mainstream. It actually stopped being missional in its form. And that's the danger of any homogeneous group. You kind of exist for your own sake rather than as well as for the sake of the lost. Well, along the way, we, as I said, we church planted Fairfield, then later on in Bosley Park. Peter Lynn now passes those churches. Um, in the last 10 years, we've attracted, so you get the idea, started with Maltese, get Middle Easterners, get Middle Easterners, go for Middle Easterners, get hippies and hardcore heavy metal. And then, and then all of a sudden, in the last 10 years, God has brought Africans and, uh, and, uh, and Asians and so forth. So at the moment, we would have, say, about 850 on a Sunday, adults and kids from 60 different cultures. Um, but along the way, something, uh, and then we built this thing three years ago, which did attract about another 200 people, I've got to say. Um, sometimes building a church doesn't make a difference. Sometimes it does. We finally had a footprint in our community. Um, time to go? Sorry? Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And with that, I'll close with three sentences. What changed for me was I probably have now shifted away from the homogeneous principle being the one where I'd want to start a church from. I think it's critical in terms of evangelism. And we have an Arabic service because of their language. But I, but my... I am committed, I think, theologically now to starting multi-ethnic congregations. And if you don't start that way, at least that's your goal. And uh, because in the end, that diversity is what I think reflects the unity and diversity of the Trinity. It is a demonstration of heaven and earth and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. In a a sense, it's basically heaven on earth every time you meet. So that's a brief history. Any questions? You've got five five minutes worth of questions. And then I move to the next stage, which is structure. Right. What I should have done, which I didn't do, was I didn't get myself a mentor. You've got to understand, at that time, no one was church planning except that, you know, Philip, uh, the ministry is under Philip. And we were, there was a lot of hostility towards church planning. And I think we got away with it because it was ethnic. So you were fighting those battles at the time from memory. But there wasn't, there wasn't the language, the infrastructure, Geneva pushes. And so, and I think it was pride, and I overvalued intuitive thought, and it stopped me from growing as a leader. And five years ago, I got myself a proper mentor where we met and worked through issues at church, and the church has been blessed profoundly. If I did that 15 years ago, I would have been a far better man. So how did I grow? I mean, just generally, even without that, there are... You got. I, I've been in accountability groups uh, with guys every every uh, every fortnight for the last twenty years. Uh, we hear each other's preaching. We confess our sins to each other. That's kind of baseline stuff, you know. Saying your prayers and and uh, uh, closing the gap between your walk and talk and confessing when the the two are far apart. Uh, he's right about marriage. You know, my wife said to me six months into MBM, if it keeps going on like this, it's not going to work. She shot, a bow, shot over the bow, and in other words, what she was saying is, you know, I basically was working too hard, wasn't doing rest time and family time, and um, if I didn't listen to her then, uh, we may not have been together now, let alone MBM. So uh, hearing, you know, learning through those experiences, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a standard things, yeah. But, but reading, I didn't read enough, and that was one of my 
I like reading even, but I just didn't read in the right areas. And I think at that stage, it almost like there was an area you were allowed to read in and there's a broader reading that I needed to do and I didn't do it, which I think now is, a, you know, I think you've got far better people speaking on a far broader platform that allows us to learn. I didn't do that. It's another regret. So you're hearing a lot of my mistakes here. Okay. Last one. Yep. Yep. Not for my demographic. So we went from my lounge room to Tyndale Christian School. Um, and then uh, we went to Doonside Neighbourhood Centre and then Rudy Hill High School. Um, but we, by that stage, amalgamated with the parish of Rudy Hill, but they had a really crappy church building here that was no good to anyone. But our church, other church plants were in Fairfield Anglican and Bosley Park Anglican, and they were struggling churches, and we basically rented space from them. Yep, yep, because it really was an obstacle. Uh, you get people from Catholic and Orthodox, and especially if you're small. Yeah, I remember one guy, his name was Adolf. He said, Ray, you have a Mickey Mouse church here. <laughs> it's a very bad German accent. But uh, because we were small and meeting in a public setting, uh, in a neutral setting, and from his framework, it just didn't look like the real deal. So I would have probably done it differently. Uh, that's why we did do those church plants, yeah. And it was an argument for our building. You know, it, it, it's easier to bring your Catholic friends to a building. Now, that's with certain ethnic groups, you know, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern ones. And I'm not sure it's quite the same now as it was even 20 years ago. So time changes as well. Matt, we'll make you the last question. I think we said that and then I'm over time, aren't I? You are. Okay, I can't then, Matt. Sorry. But we'll have time, questions at the end and we'll come back. We've got to stick to this principle, otherwise... Hi everyone, my name's Bruce. Um, I work in the. So microphone, forget about that. Um, I work in the as the administrator of the church, uh, exec pastor. If we can work out what that actually means, is where I think I'm moving into. Um, I am into processes and systems, and I'm not intuitive. So Ray and I work really well together. We sort of complement each other. Ray's asked me today to talk about the uh, the structure that we have here. We work with a purpose-driven structure here. Um, M structure, you might know it as. I assume you guys have done enough of this that you don't need us to go through the, de the details, the basics. What I want to try and talk about is how does it work here, what might be a little bit different, and how have we found it? What's worked for us well, what hasn't? So what we're really saying, to, to summarise it for those who may have just forgotten, I'm not sure you could forget with all the, uh, the stuff you would have done on this, but we work under five main purposes that we see summarise well the purposes of God for MBM. Magnification for us our little um, you know, statements about each of them to remind us what it's, it's all about God is what magnification is about. It's about bringing glory to God and delighting in him. Our mission is about preaching Christ and doing good. And if I'd known the discussion that was going to be on here this morning, I might have been a bit more, a bit more trepidation about putting this up. We decided that our mission we would include both primarily preaching Christ but also doing good to others. Uh, I'll talk about that a bit more in just a second. Membership is about doing life together as a community within MBM. Maturity about being more like Jesus, growing into knowledge and love of him. And ministry about unleashing people for works of service. Uh, on that one of uh, mission, we spent a lot of time talking about mission, what we really wanted it to be. We discussed exactly the things that were being talked about this morning. Is it right to put just social justice, doing good under the heading of mission? In the end, we decided we did want to do that, but with a, an obvious priority. Uh, based a lot on what uh, the sort of statement that John Piper made, that we're committed to relieving suffering in this world, but even more in the world to come. Uh, that's about all I was going to spend on the M's. If you want to ask me more about how we've actually set those up, 
that's, that's fine. But that's one area that we've maybe a little different to some of the other churches in putting that under that banner. And we've been happy with how that's been working up till now. So the structure really was that with the five M's, we put, our aim is to have an, an M pastor, a purpose pastor over each of those uh, purposes. It isn't quite the case now. We've got uh, one guy looking after both maturity and ministry. We've got Ray playing both senior pastor and mission pastor. But we would like to get to the point where we can get a real focus on that. The benefit of that is that when you're an M pastor looking after one of those areas, you can focus on it. You can uh, work at deploying the same systems through multiple congregations. You can you know, actually put some time into some specialization into that area. The downside of it is exactly the flip, the other side of that coin. That if you're thinking about that all the time, you can become very siloed to where that's all you're thinking about and not working with the other M pastors and the other areas. And we're all supposed to be shepherds of the whole flock here, not just our little area. The other problem that you can fall into is that if I'm thinking, I was a membership pastor for two and a half years, if I'm thinking membership, I'm going to like the idea of putting exactly the same system in for 8 o'clock and 9 and 10.30 and 6. That's easy for me. But that doesn't necessarily suit those congregations. And so there's a tendency to try a one-size-fits-all, and we need to work against that. So one of the ways that we've tried to work against both of those problems is what most churches who run the M structure do is really to think of it as a matrix of the five M's, the five purposes, and all of our congregations or gatherings that we have. And in each one of those boxes, we want to fill it with somebody, which we call our M drivers. So, for instance, this box here is a a person who is keen on mission, looking after mission, but looking after mission for our 6 p.m. congregation specifically. They're trying to think, how do I make sure that our mission purpose is being applied well to our 6 p.m. congregation? How do I make sure that's working? They become the, the eyes and ears, really, of each of the, of the M pastors in each of the congregations. That's coming. <laughs> but to make that work as well, again, nothing, nothing that we've invented, but we've really taken from other churches, is the position of focus leader. The focus leader is looking after the five... M drivers in the horizontal line. So our 10.30 uh, focus leader's job is to be marshalling these people to make sure that all the five M's are being applied well to 10.30. He's jealous for 10.30 that it actually runs well and applies those purposes. One of the... Well, sorry, first thing I should say is we didn't put this in place or haven't put this in place as well as we should have very early. We were strong on getting the five M's running but we didn't really put this structure in. We did to a degree, but it was a bit of a token effort. And now we're seeing that we've been held back by that and working very hard right at the moment to get those positions filled and to work better with the focus leader role. So that we've actually made the decision going into next year that these focus leader roles will actually be all staff. It was something we were trying to avoid. We were trying to allow to use more of the, the lay leadership in our church but we've just found that the, the role we're expecting this person to play is very hard with a full-time job and everything else that takes people away. And uh, to do it properly and to really marshal these people and work well at our services, we're needing to do that. The other benefit of these M pastors being down in one of these services as a focus leader is it actually works against that siloing I talked about. So not only is the, M, the membership pastor looking after membership right through the church, he also is sitting over here in one of these spots looking after all the M's for that congregation. So in one part of his role, he actually has to think across all the structures, avoids the siloing I talked about. 
Okay, so the M driver role is probably worth talking about because I think we do this a little bit differently. We, well, I'm not, sure, I'm not even sure why we decided, but we thought the best way to use our M drivers was, as I said before, to be our eyes and ears and, as Ray said, our imagination. <laughs> it could well be that we went to EV and thought that the, the M driver role was a different one, but we're actually happy that we did in the end. Um, so the role of these M drivers is not a doer. The reason for that was as we allowed them to do more in their congregation, we found they stopped looking at what was happening. Their role is to be the eyes and ears and imagination within the congregation. So what I mean by that, the, the M driver for 6 o'clock in membership, for instance, needs to be looking at the 6 o'clock congregation and saying, is membership working well here? What's going well? Talking to people. Where is it breaking down? What could we fix? And then using their imagination to actually work out what's the solution to that. So when those groups, the ten, the, say the 10 group, all of those M drivers meet together once a month, uh, once every two months they'll be meeting together, their role is to say what is the M structure that is not being applied to this congregation, how do we solve that, what are some concrete suggestions we have and then push that up to the M pastors that are involved. They're not doers and we've had to hold back very strongly from letting them get caught up in doing the work in that congregation. Uh, so they can continue to be our eyes and our ears and watch what's happening and monitor. At the moment, we're really happy with that structure. It's different to some of the other churches. When we talk to EV, their M driver role is a much more of a doing role. Uh, but they've started to find they've got to put staff into those roles as well because of that reason, because there's a lot big uh, a, a, a workload within that role. So we're trading off. We can actually use our lay people to do it and keep their role very strictly eyes and ears. They are to be very much solution-driven. We don't want them coming back to us with, here's a list of 10 things that are going wrong at our service in this area. We want them to come back and say, here are the things that are a problem or that we think we can do better, and here is what we think we sh you should put in place. And we've worked really hard to give them some small early victories to encourage that group to actually put some runs on the board so they don't keep thinking they're firing ideas up and nothing's happening. Uh, some of the things that have happened uh, in those areas, we had... Our 6 p.m. congregation decided to do a, a set of artwork for one of our sermon series where we'd actually have, it was called Matters of the Heart that Ray was preaching on. We actually got artwork all around the sides that were di different ways of people depicting the matters of the heart. Um, had a, an observe week from our ministry team. Our ministry drivers come up with the idea that rather than just asking people to serve in a ministry, let's have a week where they can actually go and work in that ministry or observe people very closely, be in the team, actually watch what's happening and then make their decision of whether that's a, a ministry they want to get into. We had this thing come out in the last couple of weeks from our M drivers. They said they wanted to put together 10 tips on encourage, encouraging your ministry team. Went and got a graphics guy, put it together nicely, and that's come out as something we can hand out. And there's a number of copies of that if people are actually interested in taking that as well. So the M drivers are... What it's helped us to do is to... Um, to use the ideas that are out there hovering around, floating among the congregation, but never get to us. And so far, we found that really successful. My last slide, trying to pull it all together. What's worked well for us in the whole thing? Um, first thing, really, is the structure. Ed Stetzer mentioned yesterday that even in a small church, one of the reasons that it, uh, one of the obstacles to growth is lack of systems. So, structure is, is important, even in the smaller size. Well, as you grow to a larger church, it just becomes totally critical. As we've grown over the last couple of years, and I think the uh, year before last and then last year, we had 150 new adults join us each of those two years. 
And if we had not had put the structure in place, if we had not known whose role it was to look after the new person coming in and to be evangelising the people who were coming in who weren't Christians, etc., who was looking after that, I think we would have died in the chaos. It gives us... So we can keep control to some degree. It gives clear ownership uh, for any person, any person that comes in, whatever point they're at, any issue that comes up, it's very clear to us now who that sits under. They don't always want to look after it, but we, it is very clear to know where does that go to. We did for a while seem to be pointing at each other as we were sort of working some of this out, but I think we've got it pretty well settled now. Um, it assists, therefore, knowing what is your role, and it assists then you delegating down through that structure to who really needs to look after this. It's been great for us. And it actually helps us avoid letting people slip through the cracks. One of the fears, I think, for a lot of people of putting any sort of structure like this in place is you forget the people and you become structure and process oriented. People become numbers and you're not thinking about them. I have to say I think it's the opposite for us. I think with the growth we've had, we would have really struggled to look after the people if we hadn't had some structure. It's the trellis and vine thing. Um, you want to be careful the structure doesn't take over and we have to be careful of that, but without this structure we would have really struggled to love and care for the people that have come in in the last couple of years. The other obvious advantage for it is, is the fact that you can be specialised, as I said earlier. Um, you can have focused energy and planning in a certain area. When I wore the membership hat, it meant that everything I looked at, when I looked at a service, I was looking at it through the eyes of the membership pastor. When I looked at how we did our morning tea, what our foyer looked like, what our signage was, I was looking at it thinking, what does a new person feel like when they come in here? How do they get connected in here? Is this scary? Have we made it easy for them to get to know other people? So everything I looked at tended to be with that hat on. So it just gets me more focused. One really good thing about it is that we're owning a purpose, not just the jobs. And what I mean by that is you can get given a list of here are your roles, but the purpose doesn't say that. The purpose says these things fit under your purpose, but really your purpose is the broader. For example, the very best example, magnification is about glorifying God and us delighting in him. Now, Scott... Lavender looks after that. He doesn't, one big part of what he has to do is look after our services every Sunday. But his role isn't to look after the services. His role is to see that we are glorifying God and delighting in him. And it spills outside of the service. He's to look at, that we're doing that even in our homes, even in our growth groups. In fact, he also has the role that even within the staff group, it's Scott's role to keep us on track, that we're glorifying God and delighting in him and not getting lost in tasks and whatever else we might get lost in. So the role, the purpose actually expands what the role is rather than here's a list of ministries, a list of uh, jobs that you've got. And lastly, what's been a real joy is bringing people together of like-mindedness, of like passions. I was at a mission drivers meeting in Ray's house a couple of weeks ago so that everyone who was there had put their hand up as being happy to be a mission driver. Therefore, they were focused on mission. They were focused on the lost. They were focused on how we best reach them. And the meeting just has more energy, more focus. Everybody's there for the same purpose. And so that's just been, I guess, a real excitement as we've, uh, we've seen that, that, that common focus come together in so many of these meetings. What have our wins been, our practical wins in that? I think we are now, a couple of years later, looking after our missionaries, caring for our missionaries far better than I think only happened because we actually broke this up and looked at each area specifically. I think our welcoming um, has really improved. We've been able to focus on how we welcome people as they came, come in, and that was really important, as I said, as these numbers came in over the last couple of years. And on the negative side, if I want to show, just to show that that really happens, ministry was probably the area we focused on the least for the first couple of years. In fact, I think for the first two years, 
ministry, the ministry M was shared between Ray and myself and Rowan, and therefore none of us really owned it. We all sort of thought we were doing a bit of it, but it's, it, we got together and talked about it, but it tended to not get focused on. When we ran our NCLS survey in 2011, the thing that most of the people in our church said they wanted to change over the next 12 months was that their gifts would be recognised and used in service in our church. So there seemed to me to be a complete, an exact correlation between where did we not focus, where did people feel like we were letting them down. Um, and they've been the main benefits to us. As I said, the dangers are the siloing, um, but we've tried to do, put things in place to fix that. Is that about time? That's time. I think Ray said we've got 10 minutes of questions if you have them. Oh, look, there's the time. Look at that. Sorry, you're right. I've been saying in the service. What we think about when we, I, 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 put, I drew those, uh, those lines up as services, but the way we look at that, people that gather at that service. So it's not just when they're here on a Sunday. It's that group of people, but it's that group of people when they're back at home during the week, when they're in their growth group, wherever they are. Thanks, Ray. Any questions? Uh, largely, that's our aim, is to try and make them service-specific, but it can't, you know, quite often it doesn't actually work. Someone who really needs to go to a group and there's no, none that suit them at that service, they'll tend to go to another one. But it's certainly our aim to give each congregation uh, an identity of its own and therefore to make our growth groups match that. You had to say something? Look, to be honest, well, I think I partly knew it was never going to stay with one ethnic group, but it was probably going to attract similar. What was surprising to me was it just didn't stay with the Mediterranean Middle Easterners. I got the hippies, you know, the heavy metal dudes, and then, and then it just became much broader. And in the end, it became the international field. So really it was... I had my plans, but I think God was overriding it and just bringing people to us under his wonderful sovereign purposes. I think that's going to be a question I'm going to answer. Are you going to be here tomorrow? Tonight? No, when's that question done? I think there's an open forum on cross-cultural work. On that very, I think that question's coming up. That's an important question. Can I leave it till then? And, yeah, just for time's sake, yeah. Because my default position will be mission, it won't be administration. <laughs> so I guess if I was much more administratively oriented, I might have gone the other way. Look, I think what happens is you're not born with the, the, the purpose model, are you? So we had the traditional model, past the congregation model. Then we did go to a specialised model, uh, but was still ministry-driven rather than purpose-driven. Then we went to purpose model. And they were, nat- they, they were stepping stones along the way. Uh, but probably what's happened is is that along the way staff changed that fitted more. So you staff differently with this model because generalists, some people are excellent at generalists and others can't stand being specialists, you know, and so, uh, you know, it, the whole play would have been different, I think, if I knew from the beginning. It, this has helped me work out who to employ. So I think you're, um, I think my weakness was so clear in this area it was it was a necessity that we had bruce but bruce came on before the structure anyway i mean to do actually evangelism too to be fair because the irony is 
the best evangelists we have in doing our Christianity Explained course, which is our main initial pathway that we do every, every, every term, every service has it running parallel uh, and on Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights. So we're now doing that full blown. It just, we just have them all the time. Uh, he's our best EC person, but he's admin. <laughs> so he comes under me when it comes to purpose, mission purpose, but actually... So it doesn't mean you're not actually doing other ministries. It's just that I have to make sure that that's done well. But um, am I answering your question? Um, I think in my default position didn't include mission. I think that might have been a problem, and I think it's still a problem, and I think uh, we've given him a day just to work on that to offset the fact that I work as senior pastor. Um, but if we were to start it all over again, I, I, I might have employed on a different kind of order base. Um, but I think I regretted not having more admin staff early on, as a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Because I always thought, I've got to get someone on the ground, got to get someone doing ministry. And even secretaries I resisted having. Because I think, wow, the money I spend on a secretary, I could get another evangelist or whatever. But in the end, the admin just killed everyone. And then we ended up doing less of it and not very well. Yeah. Well, my, my goal in, being, in running the admin team is um, taking the load off the other pastors. So I'm actually trying to take everything I can from them that we can cope with. That is the repetitive administrative work to free them up to do the ministry. So you're still right. We've still got to think about you know, who are we hiring and where's the best place to hire at a time. But hiring admin staff, if you do it properly and put it in place properly, is actually increasing your ministry capacity. And it's, you hear admin and you put a whole lot of things into that box because you don't understand. So we've got CCB, we've got people, you know, the whole thing is structured to get person step it's very people-centered administration and and bruce serves us in saying helping us get the person to the next step so while it's admin it's so closely tied with getting us doing what we want to do and makes us people-centered in the process Yeah, I mean, I haven't been in the situation of being in a small church with it. Um, one of the people I have spoken to is Rowan, because Rowan Hillsden came from here, went to do a church plant at Auckland, and immediately put in a very similar structure. Uh, he was working under the, the, the statement that a lot of people make that you need to act like a big church before you are a big church. Um, but I had a lot of discussions with him at the time and thought, you know, is that right? If you're that small, can't you work more relationally and organically until you get a bit bigger and you need it? He's convinced that's the right way to go. I was interested to hear Ed last night that he said, even as a small church plant, 35 people, systems is already going to be a block. So I probably would have, would have naturally gone with exactly the, your question, you know, thinking, do you really need that? Um, but I'm, I am hearing from some small churches that it's actually helping. How you implement it, exactly what you're, asking, you're saying, is probably the, the trick to it. Do you start with a, a lower level of the way you use the drivers? Exactly, you know, are the pastors partly specialised and partly having to be generalist for the moment? I think you've got to play that out by your church, the amount of staff you've got, the sort of people you've got. Does that answer the question? I'm not really giving you an exact answer because I actually haven't been in that situation. Rowan would be a good one to talk to because he's done exactly that. And he took a lot of the things we had and put them straight in place. At one stage they sort of had you know, invitations to um, EV startup and all these things. And I thought, is that really going to work with all that? It seems to be working quite well. That's a really good way of answering, actually. That really helps. That's a much better answer than I just gave.
Yeah, the purpose, it's, it helps at any size, but how you implement it. And uh, that's where your staff will come from, by the way, because a lot of them will just, um, they will arise and have demonstrated gifts in that area and think, that's the person who I want to employ, because they're tried and tested. Here's my wife, Sandy. She's going to speak to you. I said, if you were talking to church planters, what would you want to say to them concerning children and youth ministry? Or children's ministry, I think. No, youth. Hi. Kids, like we heard last night, it's one of the uh, three keys as to why um, churches grow. It's interesting, church um, uh, pastors tend to include children in their numbers when they're saying how many people turn up to church. Um, But uh, it's interesting uh, the amount of time um, that pastors then um, uh, put into thinking about kids' ministry. Um, how intentional they are when it comes to the kids. They're quite intentional when it comes to teaching and pastoring the adults in their church, but often they're quite blind or, or don't put the time and thought into at least a third to a half of their church who just happen to be under the age of 11. And they tend to hand that over and then not follow through. So what I want to do is to just to stop and think about what it is that you're, um, how, how it is that you think about kids' ministry. Um, and there's a number of models, and I want to suggest that you don't do the first three. Okay. The nuisance model. Is this your model? Basically, the primary aim of the nuisance model is to keep the kids quiet and make them invisible. This is not a good model for children's ministry. Hopefully, I don't have to say too much more about that. Necessity model. In other words, you've got kids there and something needs to be done. And uh, there's a theoretical commitment to the kids, but it's little more than babysitting um, is what's actually happening. Um, There's little priority put into the thought of what's happening in kids' ministry, little time, little effort, um, and it's almost like, yeah, the kids are being looked after, we'll tick the box, and the the judge of whether it's a good kids' ministry is basically that nobody's complaining. Necessity model, not a great model. The strategic model, um, this is uh, one of the, it's, I mean, when you stop and think about it, 75% of Australians, and it's the same in the US, I'm not sure about the UK, 75% of people become Christians under the age of 18, 18 years. And so it becomes quite important in terms of thinking in terms of the mission field that's staring you in the face um, as a third or a half of your congregation are under the age of 18. Um, it's also the strategic model sort of thinks about children's ministry as an attraction um, uh, a sort of thing to your church. In other words, you use your kids' ministry to attract families or your kids' ministry stops people from leaving your church. Um, that's the strategic model. It's pretty much not very, not usually much different from the necessity model. Um, uh, and it's probably, if you think of kids' ministry as just a stepping stone, a means to an end for church growth, then um, kids' ministry is pretty much, there's no difference between kids' ministry in terms of attracting people to your church and a good coffee ministry or a good car parking ministry. That's essentially what you're thinking in terms of kids' ministry. Um, so please don't just think of kids' ministry as a strategic way of getting people to come to your church. Kids are not a stepping stone. 
they're not a means to uh, an end. And the danger of staying with this particular model is that you um, you look for a program that has you know bells and whistles, it's whiz bang um, that kids really enjoy, but you forget that the primary role of of um, of uh, the church is to raise kids to fear and love the Lord. It's a gospeling and discipling model that you want. So please think in terms of a covenant community model. This is where um, it reflects God's heart. In other words, God wants to see kids come to Christ and kids grow in Christ. It's a very much teaching, pastoring role. It is a spiritual leadership that's happening in your kids' ministry. And I think if you, one of the reasons why, um, the ways that you can tell whether you've got this sort of framework, this model, is that you speak as passionately about what's happening in the lives of the kids in your church as well as the, what's happening in the lives of the adults in your church. Um, we want to see kids come to Christ and grow in Christ. We want to model a framework which is vision-based, which actually has God's heart for the kids. And, uh, and we want to have a clear picture um, for all of our church that our church wants to seek kids to save them and to grow them so that they can become active members of our church community. So they're not just consumers, but they're contributors. This, has a, this is a vision-based model. Um, and so do you expect to see kids come to Christ? Do you expect to see them grow as disciples? Do you expect to see them become active members within your church? Um, because what you expect will play out in what you do. Or the opposite, what you do actually reflects what you think. And so vision has, if you have a vision that expects to see God at work changing the lives of kids, then it will actually impact what you do. So you will become proactive. If you actually understand that kids' ministry is about discipleship and it's about gospeling, then you'll be proactive. You'll actually seek people who are passionate about that vision. Not just passionate about kids. You can get people who just love being with kids, but you actually don't want people who love being with kids. You actually want people who are passionate about the vision to see kids' lives change. That's who you want. That's who you want to seek. And so you want to actually share that vision with your church and recruit people to that vision. You need to seek out people um, who are going to capture that vision and run with that vision. That's who you want to begin your kids' ministry in your church. So you need to share that vision to the entire church. That vision is not just for those people teaching the kids. That vision is not just for the parents of the kids who are in the kids' ministry. It's not just for the kids who are in the kids' ministry. It's for the entire church family. You want to get your whole church family on board with this vision that we're excited about what God is doing in the lives of the kids in our church. And you want to recruit people to that vision. You want to seek to affirm the ministry. Your affirmation of the ministry as senior pastor of the church is very, very, very um, key to your kids' ministry. And you can encourage them in lots and lots of different ways. Least is turning up to leaders' meeting and encouraging them in terms of their vital role in seeing kids' lives changed. 
um, uh, you can uh, drop into programs, uh, you can um, have conversations, email out, let the congregation know what is happening in the lives of the kids in your church. You need to be proactive in terms of casting that vision and seeking to recruit to that vision. The other thing you need to do is to be quite intentional. Um, and when you've got a, a vision, it will make you intentional. You want to actually, um, uh, you need to recruit whoever it is is going to be responsible for the kids in your church to that vision. Don't recruit them to a role. Don't recruit them to a gap in a roster. Recruit them to a vision. And, uh, and then you actually need to help those people who are responsible for children's ministry in your church to actually learn how to recruit leaders. Because out of all the ministries in your church, whoever is responsible for the children's ministry will need to raise an army of volunteers. It's exponential, the amount of volunteers that I have compared to every other paid member of staff. There is a huge number. We gave out thank you cards for everyone who is involved in kids' ministry last Sunday. Our kids made 198 cards last Sunday for people who've done something this last year in kids' ministry. I have 58 teaching roles on a weekly basis. I have 89 regular volunteers on a weekly basis doesn't include my holiday teams, doesn't include those people who do admin behind the scenes. It is huge. So whoever you get to recruit to kids' ministry, even if you are really small as a church plant, they are going to have to learn how to recruit the largest number of volunteers. So your help in helping them to learn how to recruit is going to be crucial. If you don't, you will burn them out really quickly. It's the biggest killer of children's workers um, is, is the whole thing of leadership. They have a high turnover as well. An average children's ministry loses a third of their team every year. Why is that? Because majority of people working in children's ministry are women and women have babies and there's interruptions in their ministry role so you've got to actually understand that that is a really if you want your kids ministry to to thrive and to grow then leadership is the key it's very important don't um a bad bad recruiting is bribery or guilt don't don't try either of those bribery is not good you do this for me i'll do that for you in your ministry not a good longevity um uh, sort of uh, recruiting practice or guilt if you don't do these these kids are going to go to hell not good recruiting technique don't recruit group uh, recruit to a gap in a roster recruit to vision um, and recruit according to godliness before giftedness so get your godly leaders in there and they'll grow okay um, make it a priority. Um, kids, ministers or coordinators need your time. They need a voice because you will make decisions that will impact their world and they need your affirmation and they need money. The most expensive people in your church are under the age of five. So you need to think in terms of being generous to your children's workers because they're going to need money. Lastly, your attitude matters. Your affirmation of their ministry, children's workers often feel like they're at the bottom of the heap. They get the least amount of time from the senior minister. They get the least amount of profile. Children's ministry is out of sight, out of mind. And basically, if the children's work, if I don't hear any problems from them, then the children's minister goes, oh, great, ticking that box. 
Go in there, pursue them, affirm them. Your attitude to children's ministry is really key. Please don't set up a kids' ministry that that encourages parents to abdicate their responsibility. Make sure your children's ministry is in partnership with parents and get your children's workers to work out how they can put the, the, the ownership of shepherding their kids back onto the parents. Um, and this is an issue that is never, ever going to go away. It doesn't matter if you're a church plant of five people or a church plant like we are, where we're you know 800 plus on a Sunday. Leadership and finding leaders is going to be a perpetual issue. Now, I'll give you one tip that I... that um, uh, Basically, in our early days, we did what most church plants do. We had leaders on for two weeks, then they had a break for four weeks, then they came back on and did two weeks and had a break for four weeks. Then we went, oh, no, that's not good for the kids. We would never do this to adults, in other words, in our small groups, say, oh, you've got a leader for a month and then they're going to have a break from you and then they'll come back after a month when they've had a break. We do it with kids all the time and we wonder why things aren't going well in kids' ministry. We did two weeks on, four weeks off. That wasn't great. Then we did one month on, one month off. We did all these different rotations. The only thing, the, the thing that changed in our kids' ministry was when they increased the expectation of my leaders. We were still a single um, service at this stage, and I said, look, rather than doing this bitsy all over the year, why don't you two ladies take term one, teach the three- and four-year-olds for term one, then go back into the service for the rest of the year. Once they did the end of that term, these two ladies came to me and they said, loved it, loved it. They saw growth in their kids. They taught them 10 weeks consistently. They saw at the end of the week what they taught them. And at the end of that, they came to me about two weeks later and they said, I miss my kids who's teaching my kids. The language before that was, when am I on the roster? When's it my turn? You need to get the language changed in your leaders. Now, how you do that is really, really key to getting people to owning the ministry. Um, Just keep this question in mind. If you've got a vision in front of you and you know where you're heading, then keep asking, what does good look like for us right now and where can I move to get to that shared vision? We need to stop. Question. Questions? Yes. Okay. Um, there's a the criteria of children uh, to, to step up for leadership. Uh, you need to be six months or more in our church. This is just the criteria. Um, uh, because it's, it's a teaching ministry. You need to be regular at a service. You need to have done all the safe ministry and the checks. And you need to be in a small group for six months or more. And I need two character references from your small group leader and your pastor in your small group. In other words, I, want, I need to know your character and your, you know, before you step up. Um, so that's our, that's our criteria. If you're a teenager, I need to talk to your parents because I need to know that your walk and talk is matching at home. So that's our criteria. In terms of recruitment, look, standing up and saying we have a need in this, it's very few people that will step up. It's really the tap on the shoulder or it's working through our growth group leaders of going, who do you identify, who's godly, who's growing, who I may talk to about kids' ministry. 
And when I talk to them about kids for ministry, the best form of a recruitment is not me telling them how great kids ministry are, although recruitment is a lot about telling stories, but recruitment happens best when you just say, would you like to come and have a look? So Amy, who's actually serving this week, she said to me, I'm not sure that I'm good with kids. I talked to her a little bit, told her a few stories. I said, come and have a look at kids ministry. And she came and saw and she reflected and she said, um, I've, I didn't expect to see kids reading the Bible and talking the way that they did. And I didn't expect to see kids actually praying about what they'd learnt. And I said, did you like what you saw? And she said, yeah, I'd like to be a part of this. I feel like I'm missing out if I didn't come. And that's really, you really want people to feel like they're missing out if they're not in kids' ministry. Um, the hardest thing is kids' ministry is out of sight, out of mind. And so you really need to get people to go and have a look and get excited about it. But it is about sharing stories and getting them to have a look. Yes? Yep, yep. Last Sunday we had all our kids up on stage and we did presentations for um, just what they'd learnt in the year. I got an email last night from a a new family at church saying how it was the highlight of the year just the kids up on stage but we also for our school age kids every Sunday um, and Christmas and Easter we have a kids talk in church Um, so we all the time are having a one shared experience adults and kids together so the adults get to see what we're teaching the kids um, uh, for our school age only our infant our um, under fives we communicate in other ways what it is that we're learning but it's a very helpful thing to try and get parents to we need to inform them what we're teaching because we want to keep putting back on to them you know on my uh, parenting um, newsletters I have the question talk with your you know have you talked with your child about what you saw together in the kids talk so trying to put it back on the agenda that the parents are the ones to shepherd their kids Um, but letting the parents know what it is that you're teaching is so important Mm. Yes. Yeah, in our church it does. Yeah, so um, so whatever Ray and the senior staff decide. So we did Ecclesiastes last term. Um, last year we did the book of um, um, Leviticus. We saw four kids get converted. We did Mark at the beginning of the year, but it was Levit. No, Luke at the beginning of the year, but it was Leviticus where we saw kids get converted. It was such a great, great book to. T- it's the blood and the guts, that's right. No, they were really convicted that they were sinners and they really understood what Jesus did on the cross. It just just was very clear. Yeah, yeah. So I have the sermon series for next year and the next couple of months I will spend. And one of the things that I do, um, this is the way that I express that Ray is the senior pastor of the church, is that... I will go through and we'll work out what the big ideas, and then I meet with him and I go through those big ideas because he's responsible for teaching the kids. He doesn't actually do the kids' talks, but he oversees the big ideas so that so that I sit under him as the senior pastor of the church and he vets all the teaching. So that's one of the ways that that we make sure that you know that he's responsible for shepherding everyone in this church including the kids, um, and responsible for teaching all of them. Mm. Yes?
Yeah. Yeah. If they if they don't have Christian parents, and I want to find out whether they're consistent outside, it's basically I don't want kids to go. I'll be this way in church, and I can be that way outside. So um, so we've had that in the past. There was a girl um, who got converted through our youth group, and she came on board. She didn't have Christian parents, but she went to a school where there was a ICF group uh, or SU group, and I talked to the Christian worker and said, "What's she like at school?" So it was the same thing, um, but just not Christian parents. Yeah, I could, I could, but this one, we, we, yeah, we could, yeah, yeah. Like I've got a, I've got a, a boy who's got converted um, a couple of years ago. He's coming into a, a junior leadership um, thing, and his mum, who's not a Christian, talks to me all the time about the change that has happened in her boy's life. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Anne. Marrying the children's worker helps uh, keep the profile of children's ministry on the radar. <laughs> that uh, communication is never better than, well, actually not necessarily. Um, but, you know, uh, I found uh, the whole communication, communicating with the congregation through, you know, vision rides on the back of stories. We know that, right? And uh, every story you tell is, is a story that carries your values and what you are passionate about. So you hear a story of a child becoming a Christian. Why, you know, that I, I hear of a, a little anecdote that Sandy shares. I'll draw that into my email through the whole congregation. So there's this constant dialogue that's happening across the congregation at every level and that, that allows everyone to get a piece of what's going on. And by making heroes of those people, I'm saying this is what we're on about in this church, whether it's a five-year-old getting converted or making a step for Jesus. And obviously you've got to watch confidentiality and all that. Okay, now uh, I thought we'd end on... Um, something a bit more contemporary. Uh, so we're in a, we've just started this year, a three-year mission kind of focus. You know, what, what was our planning? So uh, I read a book that helped me think through five shifts. Now, they actually parallel really the purposes, as it turns out. Uh, but we thought shifts in thi- like uh, kind of greater emphasis. These are all things we value, but greater emphasis in these areas is where we need to work on over the next three years beginning this year. Um, and I'm getting this from a book by Mark Connor, Transforming Your Church. You know, I wouldn't agree with everything, but I found it a helpful book. It talks about the power shift from self to God, and that's really making sure the congregation is truly bathed in prayer and recognizes that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, not just in theory and practice. So putting energy into what we call our undivided attention prayer journaling. Uh, we need to go back to that. We didn't, we're not, I haven't emphasized all of these this year. A priority shift from inreach to outreach. Um, uh, for us this year, it's meant working with asylum seekers. We have 60 asylum seekers, refugees, in, placed in Rudy Hill every six weeks. There's a big turnaround. Those, they're not confessional booths over there. They're interpreted booths. And so uh, we have Tamil, a Tamil interpreter in there, and it gets ricocheted up through that black box, and people with the right connections can hear me preaching uh, in English from a Tamil, sorry, hearing my sermons translate into Tamil so that they can understand. Uh, it's just about a commitment to wanting to do good. That, that would be a mission element that is both word and deed. Uh, a power shift from events to relationships. So we're trying to do less events and really make Sundays and growth groups high points and, not, and, uh, and people meeting up one-on-one. So they're the bread and butter. And we've just gone off. Our, our men's breakfasts are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But we're putting more work into the men's ministry in terms of mentoring and, and, and one-on-one discipling. That, that happens to be where we're at at the moment. I might regret this in two years, but that's what we're doing at the moment. 
Now, number four is the one where we put our most energy in, a leadership shift, from getting ministers to think in terms of ministering to equipping. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And then number five, a ministry shift from consumer to contributor mentality. And, uh, and so the bringing up the, the appointment of a ministry pastor itself was a decision to help people identify and unleash their gifts of ministry. We have a ministry board that comes out uh, two or three times a term. And it has all our categories of ministries, little boxes where we have needs in. It becomes a focal point of discussion. We, last year, I think 100 people signed on of ministries just having it there. Uh, I visited Hillsong the only time in my life and got the idea from them. And I thought, that's a very good idea. I'll take it. But number shift number four is what I want to talk about. Being in the western suburbs, uh, our congregation isn't by nature uh, having experience and leadership in their secular experience. So we're really getting people who aren't used to leading in their, in their natural worlds. It's not like they run a company or, or run a team under them. So we've, got to have, we've realized we've got to pump more energy into leadership. So can I next slide, please? So what we've done is we've, we've kind of... I've, I, I basically didn't trust the staff or me to do it um, un, in an unstructured way. So all of my staff, all five full-time paid staff, and now, like this year, we're required to run leadership groups, not growth groups, uh, because it was the only way. We set up a curriculum. Uh, we identified potential leaders, and, and some of those who were leaders, but we didn't pour enough time into, and said, we want to actually, in a structured way, intentionally get people who we think have potential gifts of leadership and give of ourselves and pour our lives into them through the course of a year. And so we came up with a, a curriculum, Look, to be honest, I might ditch half of this. You know, in some ways, it doesn't matter what you do. It's that you're pouring your life into them, and, you, and it's around the Word of God, okay, bottom line. But the structure we used, look, and you may disagree with the first one, and I'm, not, I'm in two minds still about it. The structure was leading oneself. We actually drew off the seven habits of people. If you're familiar with that, I know it was written by a Mormon, but, you know, there's a rough Christian worldview there. But some of the points really were helpful for people in terms of thinking with the end in mind, um, uh, being proactive, just a, a, a number of principles. And what we did was we baptized them, uh, which is always a dangerous thing when you kind of force something into it. But they're consistent with Christian principles and then got them thinking through that idea for them and how they minister. Now, what we did with that, we gave them homework. And this was the critical thing about the leadership course. It was saying, you need to commit. We raised the bar. You need to do at least two hours worth of homework, whatever the homework is. It may be you know, reading these books, this whatever, it might be going home and asking your wife for feedback about how well you communicate. You know, it might have a practical edge to it, might have a theological edge, depending on what we were doing. Um, uh, it might be, you know, spending time writing a missional plan. Um, the proactive one, which is uh, step number one, we got them to actually work through their prayer, create a prayer diary for themselves. And so, you know, bang, beginning of the year, we want to get them praying, be, be a people who are... That's the seven habits that we baptized. Uh, that was term one. Term two is what your doctrine. So that was the cover of that. Term two is what your doctrine. And so um, I did a set of studies on what I call Christian hinges. And it was basically how one truth turns on another. You notice how people often get stuck on the relationship between sovereignty, faith, one God, three persons. It seems to me that's where people get hijacked all the time, how they hold those truths. So I did a set of studies on that because I wanted them grounded theologically. And they had to do that work before they got in. So the actual time was really discussing what we did. 
The weakness of that is I didn't take the next step and apply it into leadership if, if I were to critique it. That's its weakness. Term three was what's your life. So picking up in the 1 Timothy 4 verse, what's your doctrine, what's your life, term three. We basically took a uh, navigator's book and went through that. Problem with that was uh, the, the chapters were excellent. It was on character. Um, and, uh, but there were so many navigators. There were so many Bible verses. And, I, and in the end, we might how to do that but the idea was absolutely right you know we want you know before anything else it's about character leadership is about character and then the last one was really kind of odds and ends it was uh, uh, leaders who lead and it was really anything from ministry of the pure right through to how to run a group how to cast a vision how to get a group mobilized how to give feedback uh, to what are the others uh, a plan for next year um sorry money the, the theology of money so we covered it now that's how we did it this year. In terms of the review, we're at the back end of the year. Oh, by the way, and we end with the conference this Saturday uh, with David Kraft, who's coming. You're most welcome to join. Make sure you book. And, uh, and so that he- ends this year of leadership training for what is essentially about 55 people. So I've got now 55 people who we've invested in leadership. And, and we're to meet up with each of them and think through what are the plans for next year. So the guy who manages the interpretive headsets is a Tamil guy, a, a, an Indian guy, who I couldn't get to do anything consistently since he's been with us for the last three years. But man, he's owned this ministry and all of a sudden he's firing. I'm happy. I'm happy. And I just think, I think that was a result of pouring energy. I took him on hospital visits with me. We did ministry together. And that's part of, of course, what you want to do. You bring them with you to do ministry. It's not just academic. Uh, I want to really commend that. You know, what you do in it, Pick whatever you like. I got the idea from Bruce Clark from Manly, and he does it, you know, two ways to live. Um, he did the uh, Vaughan Roberts book uh, on uh, biblical theology, uh, the pa- Philip Jensen's uh, what are, AFS papers, what are they called? I forgot. It, sorry? Ministry papers, yeah. So basically, he, he did it much more straightforward. I, it doesn't matter what you do, but identify a group in, in, from a framework of leadership equip them, spend time with them, and at the end of that year, you will have, not all of them by any means, but a group of people who you've taken the next step to who are more likely to say yes to leadership because you've been having that conversation on a regular basis. And uh, the other thing we did was this year, uh, which was we wanted to say over the next three years when we talked about our 2013 to 2015 vision, we just didn't want to grow, we just didn't want to be a fruitful ministry, but we wanted to be faithful as well. And I know you can take those words differently. So we, we survey the congregation now every year. And I've got a bunch of the surveys here. So the first one's a church survey. Uh, and that's kind of a, a reworking of NCLS. I figured, why wait five years? But we actually ask questions that we wanted to ask as well. And uh, people could do it anonymously or they could put their name to it. And so we, they can help monitor their own growth as they would answer questions and all sorts of things from their prayer life to how many relationships with healthy relationships with non-Christians do they have and that helps me as a preacher to speak to the facts of the matter I know our giving patterns based on what they say and it's pretty much your giving patterns a third give what they should be a third a halfway there and a third don't give it all you know and you and you present the data I love doing it because all of a sudden I'm responding not to what I think is there but I now got you know 450 surveys that were filled out, and I'm I'm saying, listen, this is what you told us. I get to encourage the congregation and get to say this is probably an area of uh, an area we need to work in. Uh, with the doctrinal survey, we're halfway through putting that together. 
because I did this about 10 years ago and discovered half the congregation didn't think the Holy Spirit was a person. Ah. <laughs> you feel like you failed? <laughs> and so I thumped that. <laughs> oh, did the third person of the Trinity get, uh, get some teaching that, that year? And so it allows me to not kind of work off, I'm moving less off anecdotal evidence, more on kind of grounded evidence that's kind of coming from people. There's a limitation to that. It's not the only way we want to do it, but it has become, I think, a helpful tool for us. Take the MBM survey. You can get the electronic version and remould it. Feel free to do that. You can do this online if you want. Uh, that's uh, those who didn't do it hand. We actually did it the way NCLS does it. We tried to keep to some similar structure with NCLS because we wanted to use their data as a point of comparison each year. But we do it every year, and hopefully, I think the more we go into it, the more we'll actually uh, create uh, structures that I think kind of bend towards areas that need strengthening based on what we discover. Well, I've got five minutes to go. Who'd like to ask any questions? They can. We've prov- we didn't trust them, so we got them to do it like NCLS does in the congregation. But uh, for those who were there that day, uh, look, a lot still haven't done it, but we got about 450. That's a good sample base, you know. So uh, uh, for those who asked, we sent them an electronic version. And by the way, they gave lots of, there was one question that was open-ended about, you know, one thing you'd like to change at MBM. And you can see recurring patterns that uh, were good for us. You know, I didn't like reading some of them. Uh, And some of them, they really put to voice what I instinctively knew. But uh, yeah, it helps you know the congregation. Mm. Some yes and some no. We really wanted to look for potential leaders. So thing is getting their expectation right at the beginning they sign covenants (laughs) we get them we we don't muck around i'm saying i do not want you in this group if you're going to go on holidays and miss four weeks in one of the terms this is not for you like i really jacked it up one guy had to move all his bike motorbike riding with his children uh uh, on holidays i let him off you know once a term because i showed grace but that was it he needed to know this we're raising the bar and it was an honor to be in this group Yeah. Now, these guys have to be all be involved in a ministry. This is instead of their growth group. That's the problem. If you just keep adding things on things, you're going to kill them. This is instead of growth group. I am their growth group leader functionally, but it's leaders who lead leaders. Yeah. Yep. 40 weeks a year. No, there's... Uh, so all staff have it. So we will range from 7 to 10, 12... So it, it could range like a, perhaps a normal growth group would range. And it's got to do with how good the leader is and tapping people on the shoulder. And some people say, yes, but I can't do it this year. Or they see what's required. Whoa, oh, no, I can't do that. Fine. But hopefully they'll get excited. We'll interview people about what they learn. Look, one lady, Fran, got a, I think she thinks she got a job because when she applied for a job, she's like works in a pharmacy. She, in her CV, she said, I'm doing a leadership course. Really? At church. What, what's that? And then she talked about the seven habits. Ooh, that's very... So it had actually secular benefits as well. I <laughs> hope to get a job. Uh, but that's more by the by. Okay, last question. I suppose uh, we... You know, in the old days, our present vision statement 
transforming lives through Jesus Christ to the glory of God's been with us for a long time now. But originally, it, we had a clunky one that had built within it a word called adaptable that we valued because, you know, 1 Corinthians 9 was a high value, you know, all things to all, whatever it takes. And we were constantly moving geographically. Uh, we, 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 you know, we, we did things differently. So they, we've had a culture of where we value change. So I probably don't, I haven't inherited a congregation, except the, the 15 people that still meet at 8 o'clock. Well, half of them are dead now because uh, they were elderly. And uh, that original congregation, traditional Anglican service, uh, you know, uh, that I leave them in a little cocoon all by themselves. <laughs> but uh, I think the congregation, and by the way, when you bring people in and you're part of your orientation, uh, you make that a value that you talk about. It's how people join things, especially if you have it in writing. Say, but you understand, remember when we went through that? Remember here? <laughs> okay. Thanks for your time, guys. Really appreciate it when I close in prayer. And uh, if you want the surveys, and if you want those little tips that one of the ministry te- focus groups came up with, this is a little example. Um, in fact, I didn't even know about that, or I did and I forgot it. You know? So that, that was, I was really encouraged, a little fruit from the focus groups. Father in heaven... Um, uh, we can only usually do one thing, may bring about one change, Lord, uh, in the next term uh, that's going to require energy and time and do it well. And Father, whatever it is that we've heard today that might be of some value in any of the churches that are represented here, uh, I pray, Father, that uh, and we pray that we'll, we'll actually, if we think it's a good idea and sound it out with others in our teams, that we'll actually do something about it and not let good ideas fall to the ground. Uh, and whether it's from this particular elective or something that occurred through this conference, uh, Father, help us to be a people who not only are informed, but um, are transformed and want our churches transformed ultimately so that they look more like you, Lord Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Thank you very much, guys.